know, it's going to come down to, you know, winning the line of scrimmage for sure. It's going to come down to the fourth quarter and, you know, who's going to be there in the end. And, you know, they have a really good team. Uh, you know, Marcus does a great job. They have a great staff. Um, you know, so, you know, we got to go win a top 10 game on the road. And our guys are, are really excited for this game. It's a big game. It's a big game for the Buckeyes. It's a huge game for Ryan Day, but is it a bigger game for Ryan Day or is it a bigger game for Notre Dame? Maybe we'll answer that question today on a Wednesday edition of Always College Football. Thanks so much for being here today. We really appreciate you guys. It's been so fun through the first few weeks of the season, but we're just getting started, man. And this week's games are incredible. But as you know, here on Wednesdays, we like to take a little bit of a step back Go with a little bit more of a 30,000-foot perspective, maybe a little bit bigger picture. You guys know on Mondays, we're deep in the weeds, breaking down what happened the weekend before. And then on Thursdays, we're deep in the weeds, breaking down the matchups that are coming up this weekend. But Wednesday's our day to kind of take a step back and to see it through a little bit wider lens. And as a result, we're going to do that in a lot of fun ways today. I encourage all of you to continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate it, man. If you could just go wherever it is on your podcast, if you could subscribe, that'd be awesome. Leave us a rating. Five stars, please. Not going to beg for it, but please, please make it five stars. <laughs> and if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that means a lot as well. We read those and it means a lot to know that you guys are spreading the word on behalf of us here at Always College Football. If you're on the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up right below. That'd be awesome as well. What a show do we have for you today? Goodness gracious. We're doing a college football eliminator. Okay, I'll explain in just a minute, but a college football eliminator, looking at all the undefeated teams, looking at some one-loss teams, you know, who can put this thing together? And, you know, some of the matchups come up this weekend, these teams are going to start kind of eliminating themselves here as we start to move forward. We didn't do this the first few weeks because, let's be real, a lot of the games left a little to be desired. So now we have some games where you really can extend the four-team playoff to like a 69-team playoff or a 70-team playoff based on the results week to week. I have teams grouped up, groups 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and they're all based on a certain criteria. I'll explain in a minute, but I think you'll like what we have in store for you. We're going to play what I love and what I hate right now in college football. We're going to answer a million questions on the mailbag, and you can continue to contribute to our mailbag at AlwaysCFB on both Instagram and Twitter. You can also submit them to me at Greg McElroy on Twitter as well. So if you want to do that, I'll retweet them. You can submit them and you can get on next Wednesday's edition of Always College Football. We're going to give you a little bit of an update on the Mel Tucker situation at Michigan State. Not going to dive in the weeds, not going to get into the details. We'll talk about what kind of job Michigan State is and maybe some candidates that might be in line to potentially replace Mel Tucker in the event in which he is completely dismissed, which is looking more likely based on some of the things that have come out the last couple of days from Michigan State. And then finally, we're going to give you some gambling trends. Just some gambling trends. If you choose to take advantage of them, that's your choice. Not necessarily making picks, but we're going to give you some trends that you should consider if you're looking for a little action this weekend. But let's get things started today with the College Football Eliminator starting right now. Now that we're a couple weeks into the season, not that we have a gigantic list of teams that are playoff contenders or anything like that, we decided to go about it in the way that the NFL teams kind of go about it. If y'all ever played an eliminator challenge, it's pretty fun. By the way, it's impossible, especially in the NFL, but an eliminator challenge where basically we eliminate teams one by one 
every week, depending on the outcomes of the previous week's results. So we're going to try to start doing this. It's not going to take up a lot of time. It's not going to be something that we spend a lot of depth on. And we're going to start eliminating teams pretty quickly. But right now, there's a lot of teams that I think can still make a pretty decent run towards conference championship, towards playoff spot, towards some of the other aspects that they might want to ultimately get to. And I'm putting teams in groups. All right. There's six groups. Okay. Six groups. Group one feels like the locks for the playoffs. Right now, there's one team that's in group one, and that's Georgia. I don't think I necessarily need to explain that. I know people say slow start last week. Fair enough. I'm good with that. I understand why some people maybe aren't sold on them just yet. But based on what I've seen in the East, based on how Georgia played the second half, I'm putting them in group one as a team that feels like a lock for the playoffs. And by the way, they can move down. And then teams that are in group two, group three can move up. So this is going to be very flexible week to week. Group one, Georgia. Feels like a lock to the playoffs. Group two. These are teams that at their best look fantastic and have a really good win on their resume already. There's two teams in this grouping, Florida State and Texas. Florida State beat LSU, Texas beat Alabama on the road for Texas, so it makes it even better. Those two teams right now, they're in group two. Teams that have really, really good win and they look really good in the process, so they're passing the resume test and the eye test. Florida State and Texas. Group three, teams that have looked great and have at least beaten somebody with a pulse. With a pulse, okay? There are five teams in this group. Washington is probably the top billing. They smoked Michigan State. Michigan State is not great, but they have a pulse. They're a power five team, and it wasn't convincing or it was convincing, excuse me. They didn't even come close to being able to close the gap with Sparty. Utah hasn't looked pretty all the time, but remember, they've been doing so in two Power 5 wins, uh, including the Florida win, which looks better today than it did even last week going into the Tennessee game, and then, of course, beating Baylor, but they've had to do it with a backup quarterback, and they've really started three guys in the process. Now Nate Johnson getting the start just last week even though Bryson Barnes started the first two. So Utah's in that list. Notre Dame is in that list. They won at NC State. NC State hadn't allowed 30 or more points in a home game in 17 games, and that was the longest streak in the country. And Notre Dame ended that streak against NC State. They're in group number three. Group uh, Also in group number three, Penn State, they beat Illinois with their C-plus game, and they beat West Virginia. West Virginia, two and one on the season right now. And coming off a pretty convincing win against Pitt, in which they lost their quarterback and still controlled the line of scrimmage. Now, we'll find out more about West Virginia down the road, but I think Illinois is okay. Not a great one and two, but Penn State played not well offensively and yet still found a way to get a win because their defense was opportunistic. They're in group three. Miami. Oh, hang on. Miami is in group three. Great win against A&M. Spotted A&M a couple touchdowns early, a couple points early, and was far from flawless in the process and yet still found a way to get a convincing victory and have looked really good up to this point. So they're in group three, team that looks great and have passed at least one test with a win against a team with a legitimate heartbeat. All right, that's group three. Washington, Utah, Notre Dame, Penn State, and Miami. Group four, teams that look great. They have the horses, but they haven't played anyone just yet. So they have the personnel. They've looked great, but they haven't played anyone. 
And there's a handful of teams in this group. This is six teams in this grouping. Remember, this is group four. Michigan, haven't played anybody yet. Play Rutgers this week. So they'll still probably be in group four next week when we have this discussion. Ohio State, haven't played anybody yet. You can tell me that Indiana is a conference foe. Fine. I'm not a believer in Indiana. You might be. That's fine. I think we're going to find out clearly what Ohio State has this week. They're in group four at the moment. Oklahoma, fantastic performances through three weeks, but haven't played anybody. Been dominant on both sides of the ball, but haven't played anybody. Appear to have taken significant strides, but haven't played anybody. UCLA, haven't played anybody. You can tell me Coastal Carolina is a capable foe. I disagree with you. I think UCLA, we're going to find out everything we need to know this week when they put, take on Utah, a team that I right now have in my group three. Maybe, you know, maybe Cam Rising's back. Maybe Brent Keithy's back. I don't know. But UCLA has looked really dominant on both sides of the ball, albeit against lower level competition. USC, same can be said for them. They're going to sleepwalk through the first four games of the year. They're going to get a big win this weekend, more than likely. Uh, and then take a look at what they have next weekend. You take on Colorado. Maybe we find something out about them against Colorado, but so far they haven't really played anybody just yet. And then Oregon also falls in this category at the moment. Haven't played anybody yet. Have looked really dominant in the process. And you can tell me this. Well, Texas Tech coming into the season was a team that a lot of people were high on. They went to Lubbock. They got it done. Uh, fair enough. Job well done. It's awesome. So maybe you can make a case that Oregon should be up a group in group number three, but I'm going to keep them back for now because Texas Tech's one and two, including a loss to Wyoming. So Oregon sitting there in group number four alongside Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, UCLA, and USC. Here's group number five. There's 18 teams in this group. I've listed off 14 teams right now in my first four groups. 14 teams in my first four groups. Here's group number five. This is 18 teams. Teams that are undefeated, but I don't think they have the horses to potentially get it done. And hey, I think you got to be great along the line of scrimmage, both offensively and defensively. I think you got to have a good quarterback play. I think you got to have a lot of different things to be able to win a championship. All right. You have to win a championship. I think there's 18 teams right now that are undefeated, but they don't quite have the horses. In the Pac 12, I got Colorado, Washington State, and Oregon State. You know I love Oregon State. You know I love Colorado. You know I love Washington State. I'm not sure any of them right now can get to the playoff. We're going to find out a lot about Colorado. We're going to find out about Washington State against Oregon State this week. So these two teams, something's going to give this week, and we're going to find out about Colorado against a team that I have in Group 4 against Oregon. We're going to find out about them this week as well. So good news is we're going to find out a lot here in the next few days in the college football world. In the ACC, I actually have five teams here. Obviously all undefeated, but I don't believe any have – the depth and the quality to be able to go the distance. Louisville, Wake Forest, Duke, North Carolina, and Syracuse. All teams 5-0 and or 3-0. and All five teams are 3-0. and But are they good enough to potentially win the whole dang thing? Probably not. I watched Duke against Clemson the other day. Still not sold on what they have along the offensive line. I think Louisville's got a ton of speed, but I don't know if they have a ton of depth. And I think their defense is... Uh, occasionally subpar, like they were in the first half against Georgia Tech. Uh, Wake Forest, not a believer in them whatsoever. Needed a crazy comeback last week against Old Dominion to even get it done. You got North Carolina, who 
I do think they've taken significant strides on the defense side of the football. I still think there's some inconsistencies on that side that have me a little bit troubled. And then Syracuse, I still think they're a little bit too one-dimensional. Schrader's great with his legs. When they ramp up in competition, I'm not sure we're going to exactly know what they're capable of moving forward. In the Big Ten, Iowa, Maryland, Rutgers. Iowa, I don't think, has enough offense. Maryland, a little bit too inconsistent. And then Rutgers, we're going to find out this week whether or not they're for real when they take on Michigan. In the SEC, Kentucky, Missouri, Ole Miss, and Auburn. All four are undefeated. Kentucky, very inconsistent so far. But Ray Davis is a dude. Devin Leary's a dude. But a little bit inconsistent up to this point. Missouri, great field goal by Mevis. Didn't look great the week before against Middle Tennessee. I think they're very inconsistent, but they're off to a pretty good start right now. And they're doing a better job on defense than I anticipated, at least at this point of the season. Ole Miss, we're going to find out this week against Alabama. Uh, Ole Miss, think they've taken some strides on defense. Looked good against Tulane, albeit against a backup quarterback. I think they looked good against Georgia Tech, even though they took advantage of some quality red zone defense and a botched punt fake by Georgia Tech. That game is probably a little closer than the score indicates. Same thing to be said to, for the game against uh, for the game against Tulane as well. They obviously had that fumble return to the house that kind of broke the game wide open. And then Auburn obviously didn't look good on the road trip to Cal. Looked good in the first and third game of the year. We'll find out what they're capable of when they go on the road to A&M. This week, and then finally in the Big Twelve, UCF uh, have looked like juggernaut offensively, really good. But you know they're now without John Rice Plumley. Are they going to be able to continue doing what they've done up to this point? Uh, we'll find out. But if they can somehow keep it going, that'd be amazing. Kansas, great offensive firepower, great quarterback play. But will they have the depth and the defense to be able to play with some of the top teams in the Big Twelve at the moment? And then BYU, great win this past week when they went on the road to Arkansas. But I don't know if they're going to have enough to be able to be a real contender in the Big 12 at this moment. So that's 18 teams right there in group number five, where they've gotten off to a great start, but I'm not yet a complete believer in what they might be able to do. They might join group four, though, with some of these matchups coming up this weekend. And then group six. Here are four teams right now that I think have one loss that still could make a legitimate run because they have good personnel. They have really good personnel. There's still quality on these rosters but they got to figure it out and they got to tweak some things and they got to find themselves and they better find themselves quickly because each of these four teams have some difficult games coming up in the weeks to come. The best of the bunch is LSU. LSU proved it last week with the most complete performance of week three. They went on the road to Starkville. Jaden Daniels looked really comfortable, really dominant with the wide receiver core. The offensive line looks like it's coming together a little bit. Maybe they're going to find themselves a little bit in the run game and then defensively, they didn't give up hardly anything. Nine yards total given up to Mississippi State in the first five drives of the game for the Bulldogs. They're the best of the one-loss teams right now. At number two, three, and four, I think they're all kind of mixed together because all have had very disappointing performances. Alabama, Clemson, and Texas A&M. Now, I watch Alabama, a lot of issues, a lot of flaws up to this point. Offensive line's not playing well. Quarterback, there have been moments, but not enough good moments. There's also been some really bad moments as well. But Milrow now being in there, will they alter their identity, go with more quarterback run, go with more perimeter run, and will that help them out moving forward? I remember Alabama back in 2015. They looked terrible through the first three weeks, relatively speaking. Cooper Bateman actually started against Ole Miss. They lost that game. They ended up going with Jake Coker in week four. The rest is history. They ran the table, found an identity offensively, and ultimately won the championship. So Alabama still has great talent. Can they get it together? We'll find out. I keep them in the list of one-loss teams that can still put it all together and be very dangerous for every single team they play. Clemson, I know I watched the Duke game. Defensive front seven, I think that group's still really good. 
Defensive back end, not bad. Improving. Cade Klubnik, the last two weeks, improving. Receivers, still not totally sold on what they have from a depth standpoint, but I do think they have some top-line guys. And if they can figure out a way to be a little more consistent pushing the ball down the field, I think they can beat every single team on their schedule. I really believe that. Now, they're going to play a whole heck of a lot better, but it can happen. And then finally, Texas A&M. Texas A&M did not look good against Miami, went on the road, struggled, was spotted some points, and still couldn't do enough to close the gap against a team that I really respect in the Miami Hurricanes. So I'm looking at what Texas A&M needs to do to improve. I think they have good personnel. I think they have good pieces. They have one of the best defense players in the country, Shamar Stewart. They have, I think, a quarterback that is playing really, really high-level football right now in Connor Wigman. But the pieces around those two pieces need to play a whole lot better. But they remain extremely dangerous with the quality and the depth that's on that roster. I want to go back to group five for a second, because I think if we were doing this last year at this time, TCU would have been in that group five mix. You know, undefeated, not sure if they have the horses, but they proved that they could win close games. They got there and they got to the national championship game. What's one or two teams in there? I know you say they don't have the horses, but like if Oregon State runs the table but loses the Pac-12 championship, would they get in to the playoff? If North Carolina runs the table, like who's the one team that you really think maybe something special could happen? It would probably be one of the three Pac-12 teams. I mean, Colorado, I got to be honest, I'm not sold on their defensive line. Their offensive line has allowed Jador Sanders to get sacked 15 times in three games. That has to be cleaned up. They're without Travis Hunter. We're going to find out everything we need to know about Colorado this week. So they'll either free fall in the event in which they lose badly, or they hang close, maybe lose close, and they join group six where they're a one-loss team that still has a chance. Uh, Washington State and Oregon State will play each other this week. Washington State has a quarterback that is playing unconscious football right now in Cam Ward. Quarterback's the ultimate neutralizer, and that offense is very difficult to defend. They're doing a great job defensively, too. Just look at what they did against Wisconsin uh, a couple weeks ago. I think Washington State, I would have them higher because they beat a team with a pulse, but I look at the roster, and I just don't know if it's quite there yet. Oregon State, their identity is excellent. If they run the table and lose in the Pac-12 championship game, they're 12-1. Given the state of the Pac-12, it'd be hard to envision a scenario where they were left out. So I think given how much everyone is respecting the Pac-12 and everyone's paying attention to the Pac-12, one of those three teams would be probably best positioned to be the 2023 version of 2022 TCU. Time for another edition of What I Love and What I Hate right now in college football. What I Love, Saturday is like the one we have coming up. Okay, this is what we do it for, ladies and gentlemen. It's Really, probably the best Saturday that we've had in a really long time. I'm not being a prisoner of the moment either. I mean, this is driven by ranked matchups and some of the surprise storylines that we're covering in the sport right now. It's really got a lot to be excited about. Six ranked versus ranked matchups in the AP poll. That's the most, second most ever in the poll era. And you take into account, too, if Clemson's in the top 25, they're 26 or 27, then you have seven. So it matches arguably the best day in the history of college football as far as ranked first ranked matchups. It includes three AP ranked matchups in the Pac-12, a league that's going away. And it's the first time in the history of the AP poll that there's three ranked conference matchups in the Pac-12 in a single week. So here's what we have in store for you, okay? Just so you know, from noon until 10.30 Eastern time, this is where we're at. You got Florida State and Clemson. That's noon Eastern ABC. You got number 19 at number 10. Number 19, Colorado at number 10, Oregon. That's 3.30 Eastern time ABC. You got number 22, UCLA 
at number 11, Utah. That's 3.30 Eastern time on Fox. You got Ole Miss at Alabama. Ole Miss, obviously, ranked in the top 15. Alabama, ranked in the top 15. Top matchup between the two on CBS. That's going to be 3.30 Eastern time on CBS. You have number 14, Oregon State, at number 21, Washington State. That's 7 o'clock Eastern time on Fox. You got Arkansas at LSU. That's 7 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. That's the battle for the boot. So you get a rivalry game and a cool trophy to boot. No pun intended. Uh, number six at number nine, Ohio State at Notre Dame. It's 7.30 on NBC. You got number 24, Iowa at number seven, Penn State. That's 7.30 Eastern time on CBS. Ranked matchup on CBS. Big 10. Pretty cool to see that. Number three, Texas at, num- at Baylor. At 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. And then to wrap it all up, you get to watch Caleb Williams again after a week away. Number five, SC on the road at Arizona State. That's 10.30 Eastern time on Fox. So that's what I love. When you have a laundry list of games, where I know I'm buckled up and watching ball from 12 p. Eastern time until 2 a. Eastern time. Those are the days you live for. So can't wait for what we have this weekend. I love the slate this weekend. I also love when coaches get removed from the hot seat. It just makes me so happy. It gives me the warm fuzzies. It really does. And welcome to job security, Billy Napier. Because, by the way, he shouldn't have been on the hot seat anyways. I mean, he really shouldn't. He's, he's definitely secured more time, though, with the win against Tennessee. A convincing win at that. He really took over a depleted roster. And with all due respect to, to the previous regime... The cupboard was bare. I mean, real bare on both sides of the ball, with the exception of Anthony Richardson, who was excellent. They tried to fortify it with some pieces in the portal. They did a decent job in bringing in some freshmen that might be able to play early. But now things are starting to roll for Billy Napier. You saw the pictures of him on the field recruiting at 11.48 p.m. last weekend. So the guy is grinding. Look at his 24 class. Look at what he has signed up coming up potentially in 25. Now things are starting to roll for Billy Napier, and it's great because so many people, and look, Deion Sanders, Josh Heupel, and others have kind of ruined it for everybody in a sense that, well, if you're not a contender in week year one or year two, then sayonara. And that's a really hard thing to live by. And I think a great example of being patient and understanding the process that it takes to potentially build a long-term sustainable winner is best on display, and I hate that we've talked about Florida, And now I'm going to give the example of what Florida State did to kind of fortify my belief that you need to give coaches time. doesn't matter what the coach is or what the circumstances is. Every situation is a little different. You got to give some coaches time. When Mike Norvell got to Florida State, they decided to go young. In his first year, 75% of the roster was freshmen or sophomores. In his second year, after they weeded out a couple guys and brought in some youth, 81% of his roster was freshmen and sophomores. Well, fast forward to 2023. This year, they have 57% underclassmen. They have 110 players that have played in a combined 1,814 college games. They have 41 players on their two deep offensively and defensively that have started at least one college game. And they have combined as a team to have 703 starts up to this point. So they went young. They said, hey, we're going to take our lumps with them, but hopefully in a couple of years we'll be a contender. They added a couple nice pieces in the portal. 
and boom, they're off and running. Patience is a virtue. And when coaches get removed from the hot seat, it makes me feel really good about how we're being a little bit more level-headed and less reactionary with where these programs are currently at and how long it does in some cases take to build a winner. I love very much that we are starting to get rid of the notion that you're a football school, you're a basketball school. Just because you're proud of your basketball program doesn't mean you can't also support quality football as well. And what we're seeing right now in some legitimate blue blood situations, some high-level basketball programs, some of these schools are more known for what they've done, maybe not in recent years on the basketball court than they are on the football field. But Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky, Wake Forest, and Syracuse are all 3-0 and to start the 2023 season. Duke, by the way, they're on the verge of maybe hosting College Game Day for the very first time. They play UConn this week. If they can beat UConn, they'll be 4-0. That's the first time since 2018. And Notre Dame potentially coming to town. If they beat Ohio State, I think Game Day, it's a lock that they'll be in Durham, North Carolina for the very first time. North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is looking to start 4-0 for the first time since 1997. It faces Pittsburgh this week. That'll be on the ACC Network at 8 o'clock Eastern. I haven't seen anything from Pittsburgh to make me feel pretty good about their matchup against the Tar Heels. You think about Wake Forest to the mix. If they beat Georgia Tech, it'd be the first time ever that Duke, North Carolina, Wake Forest have all started 4-0 in the same season. Kansas hosts BYU this week, trying to move to 4-0 for the second straight season. The Jayhawks had not started 4-0 in consecutive seasons since doing so three straight years. I know all you guys remember this. Who doesn't? From 1913 to 1915. So historic success being had in Lawrence, Kansas, if they can take care of BYU this weekend. And then finally, Syracuse. They improved to 3-0 this past weekend. Four rushing touchdowns from their quarterback, Garrett Schrader. Uh, it's the most rushing touchdowns in a game by a Syracuse quarterback ever. And they host Army to try to get to 4-0 for the second straight year. The last time they started 4-0 in consecutive seasons was 1959 and 1960. So even those schools that have long been proud of what they've accomplished on the basketball court, man, you can be an athletic school. You can contribute to basketball and football. You can support basketball and football. And the support has been felt at each of those aforementioned institutions. And as a result, the success is coming. So credit to all those teams. It's awesome, awesome to see teams that have not had great sustained success having it here in 23. Here's what I hate. I hate the thought of booing a player during a pregame introduction. I absolutely hate it, and I'm not the only one. Let's have a listen of what Eli Drinkwitz had to say about his quarterback. I'm going to say it. It pissed me off when we booed our starting quarterback to start the game. That pissed me off. And he went out there and played his butt off for this university and this team. They need to get behind him. We need to get behind the young man. You want to boo me? Fine. You don't boo the starting quarterback. It's bull crap. The thing is, it's not like Brady Cook played poorly in the first couple games of the year. I mean, he'd had three touchdown passes. He'd thrown for nearly 400 yards against both South Dakota and Middle Tennessee. But for whatever reason, the fans are always smitten with the young, highly touted recruit. In this case, it's Sam Horn. 
And I'm not trying to sit there and say they shouldn't be excited about what Sam Horn will ultimately do. Of course. I mean, I want you to love all your players. But I think sometimes we have a tendency towards leaning our opinion towards a player that has yet to disappoint you. And Sam Horn has never had the chance to disappoint you. Brady Cook has, whether it was last year or not, clearly they're not happy. And for them to boo him. Uh, and then what made it even sweeter, though, is the fact that he maybe had the best game of his career. I mean, a career-high 356 yards passing. That's 60 more yards than he'd ever thrown for. A couple touchdowns. Uh, used his legs, obviously, to score another one. He was near perfect in a lot of ways, hit eight different receivers for them multiple times and five more than 40 total yards. I mean, they were distributing the ball. And then I thought it was really nice to see how he kind of showed off the deep ball a little bit too against Kansas State. So here's what I'll say about booing players. You buy a ticket, you earn the right to do what you want to do. And and Phil Jerkovic talked about this. He was booed at Pitt's last home game against Cincinnati. Brady Cook was booed during pregame introductions. You, you buy a ticket, you have the right to do whatever you want. But understand how that can affect you down the road. And I'm not talking about you as a fan. I'm talking about you as a program. Because now if I'm recruiting against Pitt, if I'm recruiting against Missouri, I'm going to say, hey, man, you want to go there? Their fans just booed the starting quarterback. How do you feel about that? And what you want as a recruit is unequivocal support. You want to be cheered. You want to be adored. You want to be loved. Of course. And as a player, man, you're, you want to play well. Of course you do. So you buy a ticket, you earn the right to do what you want. But understand there could be a trickle down that could hurt you down the road when you're making a pitch to a recruit. So just understand it's your right. It's your voice. You're allowed to do whatever you want by all means. But it could have a negative effect on your team's ability to recruit. And it's just something you need to be mindful of. And then I really hate death threats for players. And we see them all the time. It's, it's unfortunate. Everyone has a Twitter, has a voice. Everyone, basically, when you have a Twitter, you have social media, everyone in the world has your cell phone number and they can just send you messages however they want. And unfortunately, on the receiving end, some death threats this week is Henry Blackburn. Uh, he obviously was involved in the late hit to Travis Hunter, the outstanding two-way player for Colorado. And the Colorado State University Police Department and local authorities have looked into the threats. And it's troubling. It's really troubling because I watched that play and a lot of people have, have said it was a dirty play and it was this. I watched that play. To me, was the hit late? Absolutely. Absolutely, the hit was late. He arrived late. He delivered the hit late. But at the same time, it, I didn't feel like it was with malicious intent. He didn't go up and target Travis Hunter in the head or neck area. He didn't go low on Travis Hunter and try to take his legs out. Like he just tried to body him up and force the incompletion. And while it was late, maybe he lost track of the ball because there was a defender between him and Travis Hunter. I'm not excusing the play. It deserved to be flagged. But some people saying he should get kicked off the team. He should get kicked out of the university. And in some ways, you know, he should have death threats hurled his way. That's wrong, man. That's not right. Even Deion Sanders went out and here was his quote. Henry Blackburn's a good player who played a phenomenal game. He made a tremendous hit on Travis on the sideline. You could call it dirty. You could call it... He was just playing the game of football. But whatever it was, it does not constitute that he should be receiving death threats. That's from Deion Sanders, the head coach of Colorado. And to take it one step further, here's from Travis Hunter himself. Quote, it's football at the end of the day. That stuff happens. End quote. 
There's no place in our sport for death threats under any circumstances. It was a bang-bang play. Was it late? Absolutely. It was late. Did it deserve to be flagged? Absolutely. But I don't believe that there was any malicious intent based on how I saw the ball dropping and then the hit being delivered. So just take it easy with that stuff, man. He's just trying to make a play. Big game, emotional game. And the fact that Travis Hunter got hurt is terrible. I hate it. I wish he was there, not just for him, but for Colorado and for all of college football. But there's no place in the sport for death threats. So just think twice before you press send if you're going to be hurling things in Henry Blackburn's direction or any player for that matter. Time to get into our midweek mailbag. And we appreciate all of you that have submitted questions at alwayscfb on both Instagram and Twitter. We also appreciate you following the show at a Always CFB. You can also follow me at Craig McElroy. You can submit your questions anywhere on there. I'll retweet the mailbag question tweet from Always uh, CFB. And if you want to respond to my tweet or the ACF tweet, whatever you want to do, that's all up to you. You totally decide, but we want to make sure we interact with the fans of the show as often as we can. So give us a follow and then submit your questions accordingly. Hendo kicks us off. Is it O-line, QB play, or coaching that is the biggest problem that Bama's offense faces? Without question, it's the O-line to me. I do think when you look at what can be done from a coaching standpoint, they now know their weaknesses. They know that the tackles have struggled in pass protection. They know that movement has hurt them. There are ways to, to attack either way. You just have to, and I went through, check out Monday's edition of of Always College Football, where I kind of go through schematically how you can attack some of those issues. So coaching will have to adjust. But if the offensive line play is subpar, it's hard to win high-level college football games, especially in the SEC. Uh, people have said, well, you know, quarterback play has been less than stellar. Yeah, but there have been some good moments too. And and I think that Jalen Milrow has delivered enough good moments up to this point to feel decent that if he can be given an appropriate offensive scheme that's maybe a little bit more run first, use quarterback run, get him involved in the run game, that's going to be something that they need to account for moving forward. So uh, I think it's O-line play first, and then they'll have to adjust the coaching and then the quarterback play. So if I were going order of concern, it's one O-line, two coaching and schematic uh, advantages they could potentially put in, and three would be quarterback play. That's where I'm at right now. Thank you, Hendo, for the question. Or damn DMV. True or false? SEC headquarters is not allowing Georgia to play at Auburn in the 7.30 p.m. slot to preserve the one SEC team most likely to make the playoffs. That is false. I always love how we have conspiracy theories going on as it relates to whether it's LSU. LSU, I feel like, has the most of them. Like, well, they're not letting us play at night. I, I don't know. Auburn... I can promise you this. CBS is going to broadcast that game. CBS has the first pick right now in the SEC. They get one night game a year. CBS does. One SEC night game a year. In the past, it's been Notre Dame at Georgia. But most of the time in the last six, seven years, when they've had that night game in their contract, it's been Bama LSU or it's been Bama and Texas A&M which both have played at night under the circumstances. So they're not using Georgia at Auburn as their nighttime game. They don't want to flex into primetime. They want to save that for another game. It'll probably be Bama at a and They'll probably be LSU at Bama. Maybe they adjust down the road. I don't know, but that's why. It's not because the SEC is involved. CBS gets to pick when the game is played. The SEC doesn't have any influence over that. 
whatsoever. So I appreciate the conspiracy theory. We always appreciate conspiracy theories on this show, but that's not one that, that has a lot of merit, at least at this point. Let's go to Shane Cowden. Well, not their only issue right now, does it seem like crowd noise has been Tennessee's kryptonite on offense? Their one big win on the road at LSU came when the crowd got taken out of the game really early. All right, here's my thoughts on this. One example of a poor performance on the road is an anomaly. Well, the Vols had to grind out an overtime win last year in a mistake-filled game against Pitt where they fell behind 10-0, answered, then fell behind 17-7. So that's the first sign. That would be an anomaly. Two, now it becomes an eyebrow raiser. Well, they trailed Georgia 21-3 early in the second quarter. Three times it happens, it becomes a trend. You let South Carolina start fast and we're down 21-7 at the end of the first quarter. Well, four times it's now happened in the last four road trips into truly hostile environments. Now it is who you are. Florida went into the break at halftime down 26-7. So yes, this is clearly an issue for Tennessee right now. And they're going to have to get it addressed. And I think the way you can get it addressed is you have to make sure you work better with your nonverbal communication. You have to tackle, by the way. I don't think crowd noise has a whole lot to do with tackling, but you have to try to recreate some of the things that give you a massive advantage at home because on the road, it's been a completely different Tennessee team. So outside of the LSU game, like you referenced, it's been a completely different Tennessee team these last four road trips. So you got to get that address. You got tough ones coming up on the road here in the next few weeks as well. And I will also say this too. I mean, Tennessee had not beaten Florida in Gainesville since 2003. So it's been a really long time. That place, for whatever reason, is a house of horrors for the Volunteers. I know the Volunteers have not had their best football in the last 20 years. I understand that. But still, that place, for whatever reason, has been more difficult than most for Tennessee over the last two decades or so. Uh, let's get to Tyler Schreiber. As a Canadian fan, which we always we don't get all the college football news because of where we are, and I'm a massive Sooners fan. How come no one is really talking about them? I feel like they should be talked about more and ranked higher. Is this a fair assumption? Uh, well, you need to watch the Monday edition of Always College Football. <laughs> I have them in the top 10. Based on what I've seen up to this point, I have them in the top 10. If I had my own poll, Oklahoma would be number 10. So I, I really like what I've seen from them. Now, their quarterback play is off the charts. I mean, Dylan Gabriel is playing ridiculous football. I mean, absolutely ridiculous football. I mean, last week, yeah, it was 21 to 30, uh, 28 to 31 for 421 and five touchdowns. Uh, and they rolled against Tulsa. And Tulsa, you know, not a great team by any stretch, but still, I mean, Dylan Gabriel is playing really, really well. And they've had some weapons that have really emerged on the perimeter. But the biggest thing that I think I'm most intrigued by with Oklahoma is that what's been a problem for them has been their defense. Front seven, back four. They've struggled on that side of the ball. Well, last week they picked off five passes. That's their most in a game since 2003. So they'll get their credit. They will get their credit, but the level of competition is going to have to heat up a little bit, and they take a step in the right direction when they go on the road to Cincinnati this week. And unfortunately for Oklahoma, Cincinnati lost last week, but had they won, then this would have been one of the games that we probably would have highlighted coming into the weekend. So I think they need that schedule to heat up just a hair, and they'll start to get the notoriety that they likely deserve given how they're operating both offensively and defensively at the moment. Let's go to Brendan Ryan at Brensry15. Uh, does this Notre Dame team finally have the speed and depth to match up with Ohio State? Now, here's the thing that I would say, Brens, and appreciate the question. 
friends, by the way, one of my good friends, uh, big Bonnie fan, loves St. Bonaventure Bonnie's, but Irish too. If you try to play in speed in space and with speed against Ohio State, it's a losing battle. It's a losing battle. Because if you're going to try to out Ohio State, Ohio State, you're not going to be able to get it done. If you want to beat them with spread offense and you want to beat them with, you know, spreading the field and, and all these things and play in space, you're going to struggle. But what's the team that's given Ohio State the most fits the last two years? It's been Michigan. And Michigan has kind of showcased the blueprint for how you can neutralize Ohio State a little bit. So here's the big question. Do they have the size and speed and space and all this stuff? I'm not sure, but I think they have the offensive line. Both tackles are pretty good. I think guard to guard, they're pretty good. Do they have the offensive line to be able to move the Buckeyes and create seams for what should be an excellent rushing attack? That's, I think, the big question. Can you take the air out of the football? Can you protect against an athletic group up front that's going to try to pin their ears back in obvious passing situations? Can you protect Sam Hartman and allow him enough time to survey the field and find a receiving core that, to me, at this moment is improved, but still against top-quality competition, it is a bit of a question mark. I think a couple of key pieces in this game for Ohio State are the secondary. They have to be elite in the secondary. Benjamin Morrison's got to play the game of his career because he's probably going to get a lot of opportunities to go up against Marvin Harrison. And guess what? Benjamin Morrison's a future NFL player. No doubt about it. Maybe a first-round pick at corner. But we know Marvin Harrison is. Marvin Harrison's already an NFL player. So you got good on good. And Benjamin Morrison's going to have to the game of his life. He's going to have to the game of his life. And if he can limit what Marvin Harrison can do, that's going to help an awful lot. Safeties. I've been pretty impressed with how those guys have grown so far for Ohio State. They're going to play really well. Ball hawking. They're going to read the eyes. They're going to, have to be really smart in coverage. They're going to, have to win some one-on-ones. They're going to, have to make some bang-bang plays. They're going to, have to come up and fill and run support because those corners can't be put on islands. So you're going to start taking away the pass. And then when they hand it off, you're going to, have to crash and make a play on one of those outstanding backs in space. And then I think another huge aspect of this, the big question mark of Ohio State this year so far offensively, some people have said quarterback. I think it's the offensive line. In particular, it's the left side of the offensive line. So is it Batello off the edge? Is it Cross inside where he can maybe win with an undersized defensive tackle? Maybe he can make some plays. Is it Burnham, the redshirt freshman, who I think has got a real high ceiling, but still a little bit young as of right now? Is it Devante, Javante Jean-Baptiste, who is very familiar with what Ohio State does offensively? Those are all questions that I think need to be answered, but I'm cautiously optimistic that Notre Dame can play their game against the Buckeyes, but I have to execute extremely well offensively as well, because I think Ohio State's group defensively has grown significantly. Let's go to Gary. Where would a Notre Dame victory against Ohio State rank as the biggest win in the last 30 years for Notre Dame? Also, what would these mean for Ryan Day, who would be 0-3 against his last three ranked opponents? Well, let's start with Notre Dame. Historically speaking, I don't know how it ranks in the top 30. I really don't. Because most of my childhood, the best moment for Notre Dame was the Bush-Push game where they had a what appeared to be an unbeatable USC team on the ropes. Okay? So that's my childhood. I was born in 88. That's my childhood. And I think about in the last 20 years where there's some great moments in 12, naturally. I think back to the win against Clemson in 2020. That, that was obviously a massive breakthrough win. 
Um, I think there have been a lot of games where Notre Dame has had huge opportunities. Huge opportunities. Only to see it fall by the wayside. The last year's win against Clemson was a massive, massive win as well. So I, I don't like to necessarily say the biggest game in 30 years, but I can tell you this. It'd be by far the biggest win in the Marcus Freeman tenure. And I think it'd be probably by far the biggest win in the last seven or eight years for Notre Dame because Ohio State has everybody's universal respect. And if Notre Dame can somehow pull this off, gone is the notion that they don't perform well in big games. And I think they got a real chance to compete this weekend. I think they're going to play excellent. And then for Ryan Day, he's going to take a ton of heat if he comes up short. And is it fair? Is it warranted? Is it justified? Probably not. But such is life when you're the head coach of Ohio State, man. The expectation level is almost unheard of. Where it's championship or bust, championship or bust, championship or bust. But I think all can be made right in the world if he could take care of business against Penn State and Michigan. Now, yes, will Ohio State fans be furious if he comes up short? Of course. But if he beats Michigan, all is right in the world. He goes to the Big Ten, makes the playoff, potentially wins a championship, all is fine. So I think it would hurt a little bit for the moment. But the big one that Ryan Day absolutely has to have, that's against Michigan at the end of the year. News and notes on the day. Michigan State Athletic Director Alan Haller has officially announced that they have begun the process of firing Mel Tucker for cause. Now, Tucker has seven days to present to the university reasons why he should not be terminated for cause. Off the field, Tucker was suspended without pay amid a sexual harassment case. This termination uh, has no impact on that case. Now, on the field, he was in his fourth year, a uh, total record of 20 and 14, which included a great 21 campaign that led to a New Year's Six win where they finished 11 and 2. And then they signed Mel Tucker to a 10 year, $95 million contract extension that was going to run through 2032. Now, on that contract extension, Tucker is still owed about 70 something million dollars, 72, 74, 75 in that vicinity. And in the event in which he is terminated with cause, he would forego all of that money. I'm not going to get into the details of the case. I'm not going to get into speculation. I'm purely going to talk about what this job is and who could potentially be on the short list of guys that Michigan State might consider in the event in which this goes down the way it seems like it's going to go down. When you look at what Michigan State has accomplished, you can win there. Okay, they've been to the playoff. They've been to the New Year's Six multiple times. They won the New Year's Six just a couple of years ago. You have a ton of resources, as evidenced by the $95 million contract that Tucker signed just two years ago. One of the biggest you know, renovations in the country is the Tom Izzo football building, which is about $78 million. So I think when you look at what kind of job this is. It's a very attractive job for a lot of potential candidates. And I think too, the last time they went through this process, that was when Mark D'Antonio decided to retire. That was on February 4th of 2020. Signing day was just a couple days later, or a day later, whatever it was. Granted, they had the original signing day back in December, but that was the second signing day. So the timing was a little bit different. Now, whoever might get this job is going to have a full cycle to be able to evaluate and potentially bring guys in for the first signing day. And then obviously for the second as well. Some candidates right now that might be on the short list for the athletic director and the administration right now 
Duke head coach Mike Elko is at the top of just about everybody's list. The guy has done an amazing job at Duke, a terrific, terrific coach. And just on an XO standpoint, on a scheme standpoint, uh, he's excellent, universally respected. And I do think will be pretty much offered a handful of jobs at season's end if he can continue to win the way he's won up to this point. Another one that might be under consideration would be Sharon Moore. He's 37 years old. Uh, he was the he was at Central Michigan for a little while, then went to Michigan in 2018, and it's now become the OC. Uh, he's put together an incredible offensive line contingent there and winning the Joe Moore Award back-to-back years the last couple of years. Another guy to potentially consider would be Pat Narduzzi. Pat Narduzzi, the last time this job was made available, was certainly in contention. I believe there's reports out there that he turned it down not once but twice. And then he decided to remain loyal at the time to Pitt. But right now, Pitt is sitting at one and two. And things don't look quite as good for Pitt in the near future with what's going on in the ACC and what Phil Jerkovic's done up to this point. So maybe in the event in which Pitt doesn't look quite as good, maybe Narduzzi really considers making this move if it's afforded to him this time around. Another name to keep in mind is Sean Lewis, formerly the head coach of Kent State, currently the offensive coordinator of Colorado. Has a ton of Midwest ties, runs an innovative offense that really features playmakers, wide receivers, and quarterback play. And clearly with the disadvantage that they have at Colorado with the offensive line, they can kind of coach around that with the scheme that they run. Now, the results were a little bit mixed at Kent State, but he did. That's a tough place to win. He won more games than a lot of people there, at least in the last handful of years prior to taking the OC job at Colorado. And then finally, another name that I think will continue to probably get evaluated, kicked around every once in a while, would be Willie Fritz at Tulane. Obviously, last year he was 12-2. and two, And there were a lot of people that, that thought maybe he'd get a job this past year. Well, they brought back a decent amount of that team. And... This was a group that had two wins two years ago. So he's a good coach that's universally respected. So maybe he gets some calls this offseason as well. And maybe one of those calls from East Lansing. Before we let you go here on a Wednesday edition of Always College Football, I wanted to give you a couple nuggets for those that want to partake. A couple of nuggets, some gambling trends coming up in the games this weekend. And these games are games that we're probably not going to feature on our Thursday show. These are... Games that are interesting, games that you can maybe find an angle to, but they're not going to really be featured in a heavy breakdown. So let's go through it, shall we? Rutgers at number two, Michigan. This line right now is sitting at 25. The total is 45. This game's at noon Eastern time on Saturday. Rutgers is 3-0 and against the spread this season. One of three teams in the Big Ten to be undefeated against the spread alongside Indiana and Penn State. Michigan is 0-3 against the spread this season. One of four teams in the Big Ten to be winless against the spread, along with Minnesota, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Eight of the last nine meetings between Michigan and Rutgers have gone over the total. So that total of 45 seems to be a little gettable. Number 16, Oklahoma at Cincinnati. The line is 14. 60.5 is the total. Oklahoma is 3-0 against the spread this season. The only team in the Big 12 that's undefeated against the spread. Cincinnati is 1-5 against the spread as an underdog since the start of the 21 season. Each of Cincinnati's last five games following a straight-up loss, of course they lost last week, have gone under the total. So worth noting there. Number 18, Duke at UConn. This game's Saturday at 3.30. UConn has gone under the total in each of their first three games this year. UConn has covered each of its last four games as a home underdog, and Duke is 5-12 and 12 
against the spread on the road since the start of the 2020 season. That's tied with Virginia Tech for the worst such cover percentage in the ACC over that span. Number 20, Miami is a 24.5-point favorite with a total of 52.5 at Temple. That's Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on ESPN2. Temple has failed to cover each of its last four games against AP-ranked opponents, and Temple is 7-13 and 13 against the spread as a double-digit underdog since the start of the 2019 season. UT San Antonio is at number 23, Tennessee. Tennessee is a 20-point favorite, 56.5 is the total. That's Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern time on the SEC Network. UT San Antonio has failed to cover each of its last three games this season. UTSA has allowed, excuse me, has covered 10 of its last 12 games, though, as a road underdog. And Tennessee is 6-1 and one against the spread following a straight-up loss since the start of the 21 season. So something to take into account right there. Tennessee usually pretty angry after a straight-up loss. Maybe they take it out on Tennessee. And based on that last note, maybe 20 is worth laying against the Roadrunner. Charlotte at Florida. Line is 28. The total of 51. That's Saturday, 7 Eastern time on ESPN+. Florida is 3-9 and nine against the spread against non-conference opponents since the start of the 21 season. Six of Charlotte's last seven September games have gone over the total. So maybe a bunch of points down there in Gainesville at night. UAB's at Georgia. 40's the line. 53 is the total. Saturday, 7-30 Eastern time on ESPN2. UAB is 0-7 against the spread in road games to the start of last season, the only FBS program to go winless against the spread on the road over that span. UAB has failed to cover each of its last four games against AP top 10 teams, and all three of Georgia's games this season have gone under the total. Number 17, North Carolina, laying six and a half on the road at Pitt. The total is 50. That's eight o'clock Eastern time on the ACC network. North Carolina is 12 and three against the spread in their last 15 games against Pitt. That obviously goes back quite a while. Pitt is 1-5 against the spread as an underdog since the start of the 21 season, and nine of Pitt's last 11 September games have gone over the total. Number five, USC, laying 33.5, total 62, at Arizona State Saturday at 10.30 Eastern time. Arizona State is 0-3 against the spread this season, the only winless team against the spread in the Pac-12. Arizona State has covered each of its past three games, though, against USC. USC is 0-4 against the spread following a bye week since the start of the 21 season. And then finally, Cal is at Washington. The Huskies are laying 21, and the total is 63. That's Saturday, 10.30 Eastern time on ESPN. Cal has covered its last four meetings against Washington. Cal is 13-4 against the spread as a road underdog since the start of the 2018 season, and Cal has covered 11 of its last 15 games against AP-ranked opponents. So Cal, pretty good dog. At least they have been the last few years. So just a couple things to take into account. Don't take it as you know the end-all, be-all, but a couple things to consider if you're looking for a little action this weekend. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out, so subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That means a lot as well. We always read those, and we always appreciate you guys reaching out. And we love what we do, and we appreciate the support that you've shown us up to this point of the season. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jake, Jack, Mark, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football.
Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.